the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Leandis, Bloomberg Radio. If we look to the answer as to why for so many years we achieved so much, prospered as no other people on earth, it was because here in this land we unleashed the energy and individual genius of man to a greater extent than has ever been done before. Those who say that we're in a time when there are no heroes, they just don't know where to look. The sloping hills of Arlington National Cemetery, with its row upon row of simple white markers, bearing crosses or stars of David, they add up to only a tiny fraction of the price that has been paid for our freedom. As for the enemies of freedom, those who are potential adversaries, they will be reminded that peace is the highest aspiration of the American people. We will negotiate for it, sacrifice for it. We will not surrender for it now or ever. We are Americans. This is the Bob France Authority on AM 1420. The answer. Hour number two is underway now at 8 minutes past 10 o'clock on AM 1420. The answer, welcome to your Thursday, the 28th and final morning of the second month of the year of our Lord, 2019. Great conversation in hour number one about the two major stories of the day. The president walking away from Kim Jong-un in North in uh, Vietnam, rather, uh, as his uh, talks with the North Korean leader did not yield what he wanted, which was a denuclearization of that very dangerous uh, um, uh, lunatic, a madman, and quite frankly, he is. I know he's having a great diplomatic relationship thus far with the president, and he did indicate yesterday, and when asked by a, uh, a member of the press if he would be interested in denuclearizing his nation, and he said, if I didn't want that, I wouldn't be here, but... His history and that of his father and his family show a madman. Uh, so the president walked away, didn't get what he wanted, was not going to sign a bad deal. And then, of course, the other story, Michael Cohen sat down without any evidentiary value whatsoever, any probative value whatsoever, provided testimony to slander the president of the United States. Nothing more. Joining us now for analysis of those and more is Dr. Everett Piper. And I'm so glad to tell you what I told you the last time we had Dr. Piper on that Dr. Piper has agreed to become a regular guest on this program. He's going to appear once a week on Thursdays at this time, his schedule permitting, of course. And uh, Dr. Piper is the president of Oklahoma Wesleyan University and the author of Not a Daycare, The Devastating Consequences of Abandoning Truth. He's one of the most powerful uh, uh, pundits, I believe, uh, commenting on uh, world issues today. Dr. Piper, good to have you back on our program, and it's good to have you here on a regular basis. How are you? I'm doing great, Bob. Thanks for having me. I'm honored. It is a pleasure, Dr. Piper. A lot of ground to cover here, and um, you and I talked a little bit or corresponded a little bit off the air about uh, the 
anti-science, the science deniers on the American left who refuse to acknowledge uh, two genders, uh, biological chromosomes, biological uh, uh, anatomy, and so on and so forth, and uh, the dangers that that poses. But I'm going to ask you first, before we go into that, to comment on what we heard yesterday. Um, you know, you, you preside over a wonderful university, a Christian university. You have written many things, uh, uh, many columns and, and, uh, and op-eds uh, about character, about morality. Um, it, it goes with your, your, your own principles and that of your university as well, and I think they are very well received. So that's why I wanted to ask you, we heard some very negative things about the president yesterday. Uh, I don't know which of them are true and which of them are not true. Uh, Michael Cohen alleged that the president's a racist, a bigot, a con man, a cheat, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I don't think any of us would deny that there are some moral failings that the president uh, certainly has. And, of course, so do the rest of us. His are a lot more high profile. How do we, as conservative-minded individuals who are interested in protecting the liberty of this wonderful Judeo-Christian nation, um, how do we square that protection with dealing with the fact that a commander-in-chief, a president uh, that we do support, does have some of those uh, character flaws, uh, moral failings, as uh, alleged in uh, some of that testimony yesterday? Well, it's a complex question with probably a complex answer, so I'm going to try to Expect, simplify it. Yeah, that's complex. okay. All right. Uh, number one, um, a guy who's proven to be a liar should always his word should always be taken with a grain of salt. So the testimony of Mr. Cohn needs to be received with a bit of suspicion, and that isn't to defend any of the facts with regard to Donald Trump's morality or lack thereof. There are things that Donald Trump has admitted to and boasted of that I'm very uncomfortable with. Read his books, his relationship with multiple relationships with multiple women. I find to be very problematic as an evangelical born again Christian who believes in biblical morality as a standard for the way we behave sexually. Donald Trump has stepped outside of that box multiple times. Um, So those are facts. He's admitted that. So should we critique that? Perhaps should we accept these unproven accusations from a man who has no corroborating evidence with regard to Donald Trump's racism, for example? Where is there evidence at at all of Donald Trump being a racist? I don't see Jesse Jackson and Al Sharpton being all that concerned about Donald Trump being a racist when they were in photo ops with him, uh, you know, a dozen years ago or so. So I could belabor that, but I think we we get what we're getting back to right now is the death of due process and the death of the presumption of innocence until proven guilty in our culture today, back to the Kavanaugh hearings. And if somebody just wants to throw an unfounded accusation out at you or me or Donald Trump or anybody else, that the people who are on the other side of the fence, the opposing party, is going to assume those accusations are just as good as, uh, as the truth and run with it. And that's unfortunate, and that is not the way to have a civil society. If you're guilty as accused as opposed to innocent until proven guilty, then we live in a, in a time of despotism and anarchy. We don't live in a time of justice. So I think we need to slow down and recognize that Cohen is a compromised, uh, has compromised himself by virtue of his own deceit. If, it's, if Donald Trump is wrong, I'm going to criticize him for being wrong. When Donald Trump is right, I'm going to thank him for being right. That's where I stand today on our president. And I am pleasantly surprised with the numerous situations since he's been governing where I consider him to be right. I'm grateful 
for the strength and conviction he has on border security. I'm grateful for his tenacity when it comes to defending the life of our youngest children, those that are unborn, and now we're arguing for those that are even post-birth. I'm grateful for the fact that he has released the church to do its good work. Whether he's a Christian or not, I do not know. I consider him to be a bit of a Constantine myself. We don't know if Constantine's conversion was legitimate or politically expedient. I don't necessarily care until I get to heaven and I'll find out. But what I do know is that Constantine patted the head patted the church on the head, showed its favor, and released it from persecution to do its good work in culture as salt and as light. And I'm grateful for Constantine. So I'll thank Donald Trump when he's right. I'll criticize him when he's wrong. And as far as the testimony from a proven um, uh, a man who's proven himself to perjury and deceit, mm, I take that with a huge grain of salt. Yeah, I do too. Uh, he's he's going to prison for that. He's going to prison for perjury, for goodness sakes. He's a convicted felon uh, on matters of, of dishonesty and lying and fraud and so on and so forth. So I completely concur with that. Um, I, I want to read a tweet from David French yesterday from uh, um, uh, National Review. He's he's He was a never-Trumper uh, back in 2016. He remains one now. And, and listening to Michael Co- Cohen yesterday, this is what David French said, quote, by the way, the porn affairs and hush money payments by themselves are enough for me to never, ever vote for Trump. And that's just one thing of many. I remember the days, like way back in, say, May 2015, when that would have been a consensus evangelical position, end quote. Um, he's essentially saying that evangelical Christians have sold their souls in support of this man, and he himself cannot allow himself to uh, to do so. From a Christian perspective, and again, let's take Michael Cohen's uh, part out of this, but just what you know, the many things that uh, the president has said, as you pointed out in his books, he's admitted to several things. As Christians, can we support somebody because of the greater good? As you just listed, the number of things in support of life, in support of so many values that the church would support. Um, he's a flawed messenger and he's a flawed leader, but if he's doing things that are for the greater good, we as Christians can abide by that, right? Oz Guinness taught me something when I studied under him at the Oxford Center for Christian Apologetics two years ago. He told me this. He said, Everett, if you want freedom, always vote for the covenant. Never vote for the hierarchy. And he proceeded to say this. The European Union, Belgium, and France are hierarchical. The Magna Carta and our Constitution in the United States are covenantal. If you want freedom, vote for a covenant. Never vote for a hierarchy. In the United States, we don't vote for a king. We vote for the covenant. And there's no question in my mind which party platform is more covenantal than the other. The Democratic Party is a party of hierarchy, of power, top-down, telling everybody else what to do and how to do it. Control, big government. The Republican platform is a covenantal platform that releases people and releases the church to do its good work and to behave accordingly within the broader context and boundaries and fences of a free republic. If you want freedom, always vote for the covenant. I can vote for the covenant and did. I wasn't voting for a king. I was voting for the greatest measure of human freedom that I could get at that given time and at that given place. And I'm thankful that I have a president who's defending life, defending the church, defending religious freedom, defending the Constitution, and defending our borders. He's a broken moral man, and I will never defend that. And I will criticize that. And there are times when I wish he would just be quiet with his Twitter feed. But I'm grateful for Constantine patting me on the head and letting me be a Christian. 
a wonderful, wonderful answer, very well received. Uh, Dr. Everett, that's why we have him on. Dr. Everett Piper, I'm going to ask you to hold on here. We're going to get a check of our traffic. I do want to come back and talk about science. I want to talk about gender and the wild societal embrace of transgenderism and a denial of actual science. We'll talk about that coming back, coming up with uh, Dr. Piper on AM 1420. Station. All right, 1023 now. we got time for a few more good questions with Dr. Everett Piper, the president of Oklahoma Wesleyan University. He's going to be our regular Thursday guest at 10.05, talking about the issues of the day. Dr. Uh, Piper, of course, is also the author of Not a Daycare, The Devastating Consequences of Abandoning Truth. It is a must-read. I can tell you that. Make sure you pick that book up. Uh, Okay, Dr. Piper, I want to pivot now. Uh, to science or the lack of science. It's funny, whenever it comes to global warming, the uh, American left likes to describe conservatives like me as being a science denier, uh, that the uh, climate is changing and it's mankind's fault, and anybody who disagrees, you're a denier of science. Well, I think something that is scientifically provable are are genetic chromosomes, uh, biological chromosomes that determine whether or not you are male or female. And, of course, we know where this is going. Uh, The trans movement in this country continues to expand, and women... Girls, who used to be protected by Title IX, by the way, um, are losing uh, their opportunities to be competitive in areas of sports by boys who are declaring themselves to be girls and winning races, winning medals, winning championships, setting records that used to be uh, there for the opportunity of actual girls to win. Uh, Dr. Piper, where are we and how do we get there on this? You know, who loses with this conversation? Who's the loser? Women. Women lose. Anytime the male libido is unleashed and confused and untethered, women always lose. And that's what's happening right now. Title IX, as you said, is a 1972 law that was established to give women equal access to the athletic field and the facilities associated with athletics, the shower, the locker room, the court, etc. And now I'm getting letters from the Department of Education and the Office of Civil Rights under the Obama administration demanding that I start immediately uh, providing transgender accommodations on my campus under the auspices of Title IX. Now, my response was this, no. And by the way, Mr. DOE and OCR, how can I possibly comply with Title IX, which requires me to give women equal access to these things, if you're now telling me that I am required by you to deny that women are real and to pretend that they're leprechauns and unicorns, just make-believe, fantasies, fabrications of a dysphoric male who wants to raise his hand on a given day and say, I'm a woman. How is that pro-woman? to deny the biological fact of the woman. How can you be a feminist if you deny the biological fact of the feminine? You can't be a feminist and deny the feminine. You can't be pro-woman and be misogynistic and pretend that women are fake and pretend. This is an insult. It's misogynistic. Women lose. And we see evidence of this every day on the news right now. The two winners of the Connecticut High School uh, sprint in the track track and field meet were biological males defeating women. We've heard about wrestlers that have transitioned and now now are defeating women. And now the International Olympics Committee is announcing that they're going to allow biological men to compete in female athletics at at the level of the Olympics, and they don't even have to have the surgery. All they have to do is prove that they've had hormone therapy for 12 months prior to competition. This is wrong. Bruce Jenner, when he won the decathlon, all he would have had to have done is 
proved that he had some sort of hormone therapy 12 months before the competition, and he would have been able to compete in the female decathlon. Tell me in what world that is pro-woman and that is being a classical feminist. Yeah, uh, doctor, the the, um, the women that, that are suffering from this fought a long time to be able to, to participate in the sports. We all know the biological difference between men and women. Uh, men are bigger, faster, stronger, testosterone, et cetera, et cetera. And, and they wanted to compete, but they couldn't compete. And so women's sports were essentially created in separate but equal uh, uh, facilities and separate but equal matches. You get to run the 100, we'll run the 100. You get to uh, do the high jump, we'll do that. And... and it was their opportunity to, to rise to the very top of of their sport in their gender and to have men coming over and saying, not only are we going to continue to dominate the men's side of this competition, we are going to come over and steal all of this from you. What kind of an impact is that going to have on young girls? You talk about women, and you're right, but young girls who may have aspired. You know, some of these girls get scholarships by going to college, uh, uh, winning, you know, championships and performing at extraordinarily high levels at the high school level, and they go to college on scholarships. If they lose those opportunities because they're not as standout, because biological males are beating all of their times and knocking them down further down the, uh, uh, the, um, uh, you know, the list of uh, of achievements and so on, uh, this is going to affect young girls uh, going forward Absolutely. if we don't put the brakes on this. Absolutely. Again, women lose, girls are going to lose because we've unleashed the male libido to pretend and to fantasize. It's no longer restrained by a biblical ethic, by objective standards of right and wrong. It's no, even, it's no longer even restrained by scientific reality and the empirical facts. Today, feelings trump facts, and the facts don't matter any longer. So if you feel like this, then that's what you are, regardless of what your genetics say, your biology says, your physiology says. What is the most empirically verifiable fact of all of human existence. I would argue it's the first thing that a doctor pronounces upon you when you're born. It's a boy or it's a girl. And to deny that makes that person, the denier, the ultimate science denier rather than somebody that actually believes in the objectivity of truth. Again, women lose. I was going to approach this from the personal standpoint. I got to the girls thing because I've got a daughter who's a volleyball player, right? And she's a very good volleyball mm-hmm. player. But but very soon it's going to go from the track, which you pointed out in Connecticut, to to things like this: volleyball courts and basketball courts. And my daughter's mm-hmm. going to be standing there facing a you know a six foot two uh, male who is uh, identifies as female and grows a ponytail to prove it, and who is spiking the ball down on her face. Um, I, I, this is going to change the the the, the face. Pardon that, but uh, of, of women's sports for a long time to come. And when it involves team sports like basketball and football, girls are going to end up not making teams because boys who think they're girls are going to make those spots. And that, but, but what I really wanted to do here as we wrap this up, uh, Dr. Piper, is just talk about the identification crises, the psychological crises that so many children who are being raised in this um, are, are going to suffer with. I saw just last week a story of two adult women who think that they're men and who dress and act like men somehow uh one of them had a baby uh before they started to act like men or after i don't know and they're raising that baby as being non-gendered that baby is not going to have an identification as boy or girl and sooner or later as it grows up looking at its two mothers who look like fathers is going to have to figure out what it is i mean i'm sorry when i say this but this is child abuse pure and simple and we're watching it happen and and as a society we're doing nothing to stop it it's child abuse that's you you took the words out of my mouth there we are we are experimenting 
on our children with this sexual confusion, the sexual license, the sexual fluidity is an experimentation. We do not know the outcome. Well, I would argue as a Christian, I do. It will end very badly. But this is something that culture has not played with before, to pretend that we can contrive and that we can manipulate the very identity of what a human being is. You're the Imago Dei. You're made in the image of God. You're not the Imago Dog. You don't have to follow your every feeling and appetite and instinct. That's not what defines you. You're a morally culpable, aware human being that is biologically and specifically defined with the image of God imprinted on your heart, mind, and soul. That's the beauty of the biblical worldview. Dr. Everett Piper, fantastic words. Doctor, thank you so much for coming on today. I appreciate it, and I look forward to speaking, speaking to you now on a weekly basis. All right. Blessings to you. Thank you so much, Dr. Piper. Dr. Everett Piper, uh, um, Oklahoma Wesleyan University president, joining us on AM 1420. The answer will get our bottom of the hour newscast now. And on the other side of that, Patrick Wood, celebrated author uh, and expert on technocracy, wrote his second book with technocracy in the title, The Hard Road to World Order. He's going to be addressing uh, Act for America coming up on Monday. He'll join us next right here on AM 1420. The Ten thirty-five now. The Bob France Authority continues on AM fourteen twenty. The answer. Thanks again to Doctor Everett Piper from Oklahoma Wesleyan University. Tremendous analysis uh, of of a number of issues that I look forward to revisiting with him on a weekly basis. Uh, joining me now, as promised, uh, very very pleased to welcome our next guest. Uh, it's Patrick Wood, who is a noted author, uh, author of Technocracy. The the uh, I'm sorry I'm going to go in order uh, chronologically. His first one was Technocracy Rising: The Trojan Horse of Global Transformation. His new book is Technocracy: The Hard Road to World Order. He's also the co-author. I should throw this in there of Trilaterals Over Washington, Volumes One and Two, uh, which he wrote with the co-wrote with the uh, late Anthony uh, Sutton. And uh, Patrick Wood joins us now on AM fourteen twenty. The answer to talk about technocracy, uh, Mr. Wood. Good morning. Good to have you, sir. How are you? Hi, Bob. Doing fine. Thanks for having me on today. Uh, it's a pleasure, and uh, it's going to be a pleasure listening to you as well for everybody who uh, connects and dials into the uh, Act for America Cleveland, or Ohio, rather, uh, uh, meeting on Monday. Act Cleveland is going to be Monday, March 4th, and it's going to be an online special presentation and security briefing with yourself. And how about this? Talk about uh, two birds with one stone. You also get the brilliant Jim Simpson you're going to be speaking with as well. Can you give us a little preview of what uh, is going to happen on Monday before we talk about technocracy? Well, you know, uh, really, I'm going to be presenting about technocracy and how it's playing out in the world today. And also, um, I formed a corporation, or not a corporation, I formed an organization last year, a nonprofit organization called Citizens for Free Speech. And uh, the idea of this is to defend and promote the First Amendment. Uh, and the, uh, the the restoration of not only free speech, but freedom of the press, right to assemble, et cetera. Uh, so I'm going to be talking about both of those things. We, uh, uh, we, we have to stop just analyzing what's going on, i.e., my books. <laughs> we need to actually start doing something about it, right? Well, that's so, exactly that's a great point, and that and that's what Act for America is about. By the way, it is a very important organization that encourages activism in the right way uh, to to try to achieve things and to try to act upon these things that we learn. and uh, And I know everybody who's going to be tuned in is going to be very interested to see what you have to say about that and how we can pro, um, uh, proactively engage. 
let's talk, Mr. Wood, about uh, first just a glossary of terms, if we can. For those who are uninformed and, and uninitiated into this about technocracy, I want you to give us uh, a brief overview of technocracy and, and also the, you know, the, the, the dots that you're going to connect in your presentation and that you do in your book, The Hard Road to World Order, including some terms people have heard but may not understand. People have heard a lot about Agenda 21, uh, UN Agenda 30, the Trilateral con- uh, Commission, Sustainable Development. These are some of the things that you obviously work very hard in, in trying to make uh, digestible in your book. I'm going to ask you to try to make it even more digestible in a short summary here uh, for, for our listeners. <laughs> I'll try. Well... Technocracy was defined back in in the 1930s at Columbia University. It's where it really got its big start. And it was an economic system designed to replace capitalism and free enterprise. That was a specific uh, design purpose. And that was in the middle of the Great Depression, remember. But here's how they defined themselves back in those days. It's a 1938 definition of technocracy. They said technocracy is the science of social engineering, the scientific operation of the entire social mechanism to produce and distribute goods and services to the entire population. That's a direct quote. You can see the economic flavor of it because it's talking about uh, 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 goods and services and uh, producing things and so on. You can also see the scientific or the application of technology and science to social engineering that's probably the most frightening thing about this, Bob, is that um, the technocracy seeks to engineer society, that means you and I, to change our behavior to fit their idea of the scientific world. And, of course, there's a rub there. This is why American America rejected technocracy in the 1940s, by the way. They saw the, the heart of it, and they said not just no, but heck no, <laughs> we're not going there. Well, this whole thing came back again under the guise of sustainable development, thanks to the United Nations, sustainable development, which is a resource-based economic system. And the UN has sworn publicly and openly that they're going to overthrow capitalism and free enterprise and install uh, sustainable development, which is technocracy, uh, in its place. This is pretty radical stuff. It's so radical that you can you see a just a peak of it when you look at uh, at the 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 Green New Deal that's making the circuit these days. Um, the, that is the new cycle. The Green New Deal is the radical heart of technocracy, and I hope that helps people kind of put it into current context. It's not political. It's economic in nature, and this is what really fools people. Uh, it's economic and it's ideological, though. It may not be political, but ideological as well, because we are, to, are, are yeah. asking people, essentially, to, to abandon... <clears throat> conservative capitalism uh, and free market uh, uh, policy, if you will, um, that, that this country has been founded and built upon and, grow, and grown from. And what I, what, I'm so glad you brought this up, because I've been talking about the Green New Deal on this program for the last uh, couple of weeks and, and talking about, let's just suppose for a second we were uh, interested in embracing such a, a radical destruction and reconstruction of uh, the infrastructure of our economy, our energy uh, sectors, and so on and so forth. Let's suppose we could pay for it. Let's suppose we're all interested in doing this in the interest of saving the planet, the climate, et cetera, et cetera. 
the the rest of the globe would have to participate. India, China, the world's largest producers, uh, uh, or excuse me, polluters rather, they would have to participate. We're just 4% of the population, the world's population here in the United States. We can't possibly save the planet by ourselves. The rest of the world would have to do the exact same thing, get rid of airplanes, get rid of combustion engines, and so on and so forth. Is there a global driver that would would uh, would would encourage and 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 expedite such a thing happening if we did embrace it here in the United States? Absolutely, and it's not just here in the United States. AOC uh, kind of gives people the impression that this is some kind of an American invention at this point. It absolutely is not. It's happening all around the planet, and that's because uh, the United Nations has promoted sustainable development into every country on the face of the planet. China right now leads the pact in the implementation of technocracy. You can look at them real hard and see what kind of stuff they're doing. They have a fully engineered society right now, and they're using science and technology to continue that, uh, that, that channel where people will be micromanaged. Uh, they'll be surveilled literally to death in some cases, but they'll be micromanaged. Uh, and rearranged according to how the scientific algorithm is telling them to do it. And they have the people have no choice in China. But China's been identified as a technocracy as early as to the year 2000 by academics. It's just not written about much because it stays in the halls of the universities. But this is what, this is what these people have been talking about for a very long time. We're talking to Patrick Wood, noted author and lecturer, uh, economist, uh, and he's the author of uh, Technocracy, The Hard Road to, New, uh, to World Order. And um, you mentioned AOC. Um, I cannot believe that this 29-year-old bartender um, who doesn't seem to have a whole great grasp of the economy despite having a degree in economics, she doesn't seem to understand how taxation and tax uh, uh, cuts work and tax breaks work, but... Um, I find it hard to believe that she's coming up with all of this on her own. Uh, who is likely feeding her, coaching her, the information that she is uh, taking out there and uh, grabbing young people with, with her incredibly uh, strong online following? Um, because, like I said, I just don't think she's smart enough to do this, do this on her own. No, she's a figurehead. She's simply, I, I hate to use the word puppet, but she's a figurehead that's been uh, kind of pushed out into the limelight. She loves the limelight. She's young. She appeals to young people because she's a little bit on the crazy, so crazy and wild side. And young people are following her like Pied Piper right now. They, they absolutely love her and are resonating with her. Uh, most of the doctrine she's, she's uh, spitting out is coming from the same people that have been spitting it out for, you know, for years. They're the radical green um, sustainable development, global warming crowd. Um, again, the United Nations has sworn to overthrow capitalism and free enterprise. This is no secret. People keep thinking that the United Nations is just some innocuous organization somewhere that doesn't mean anything to anybody, including the United States. This is not true. They mean something to us, especially because they're doing it to the whole world. We are not going to drive the world system the world system is going to drive us. This is this is altogether different. But what she's spouting, she could have gotten 100% of that straight out of United Nations documents that exist today and that are open for even the public to see on the Internet, wide open. 
just go search for them. You'll find this stuff. you find all these radical doctrines. What AOC has done for us, though, Bob, is that she has shown us how radical this whole thing is. It's not just, uh, you know, a passing fancy. These people are more radical, in my opinion, than were the radicals that, uh, that pushed the Bolshevik Revolution back in Russia in 1918. This is radical stuff. It's complete remake, complete destruction of our system as we know it, and a complete remake and basically putting us into a scientific dictatorship that would be almost impossible to ever break free from. Patrick, the uh, the Paris Climate Accord um, is something that you, you cover in the book and you talk about as being a part of this, uh, along with a lot of other international accords. Um, d- did President Trump pull out of it because he was aware of this at the scale that you were talking about, or was it more simplistic, <coughs> saying essentially, well, no, that's going to cost us too much money, uh, I'm going to pull us out of that? Did, is, he, is he aware of the, 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 the global reach of that? <coughs> Um, and, and is that why he decided to uh, to pull out? I have seen no evidence that the that this administration understands anything that we're talking about here. Basically, I, I suppose somebody is a historian and may may have an idea, but mm-hmm. uh, I haven't seen any awareness from the president whatsoever that uh, that, that he's viewing it this way. Um, and it could be that it just costs too much money. But you know what? Even though he pulled out publicly. The whole thing has not been dismantled in America. Far from it. So, uh, you know, just saying that we pull out of it is different than actually pulling out of it. It's like, it's not like building the wall. Saying you're going to build a wall <laughs> and passionately believing in it doesn't mean you're actually going to get a wall built. <laughs> no, you're 100% right. It, it, what I guess I want to know, since you answered it that way, is... Um... How do we get someone like you, and I'm not suggesting you're applying for a job, but how do we get somebody like you, a historian who understands the nature of this, the nature of technocracy as it was born, uh, the development of it as a sustainable development today, how do we get somebody like that in the inner circle? Uh, and I don't, this isn't political. I'm saying President Trump or <clears throat> President whoever is next. Because this kind of stuff, uh, you know, it's very frightening when you look at the global ramifications and when you look at the individuals who are involved in this, when you talk about trilateral commissions and UN uh, 2030 and so on, uh, it's, it's, it's staggering to know that our, our, our administration officials at the highest level, no matter who the president is, is not dialed in on this. Well, I know. <clears throat> you know the, the, the information is out there. I've written two books about technocracy now. I have a, a website called technocracy.news. That has almost, uh, in fact, next week we're going to cross 3,000 articles that we've posted from all over the world that relate directly to technocracy. Um, so the information is out there, publicly available. Anybody can go to Amazon and buy the book, for instance. But the problem is, the, so far, it hasn't penetrated the halls of power. It's penetrated to some extent into society. There's a lot of people now that do understand what's going on with technocracy and how it's being applied and why it's dangerous, et cetera. But they're not the people that are actually making policies in Washington or anywhere else for that matter. So, uh, you know, getting the information up into the hands of, uh, of national leaders and stuff, your guess is as good as mine on how this is ever going to happen. I just don't know. 
Patrick Wood is my guest. Uh, Patrick, we're short on time, but I want to ask you one more question, and I want to remind everybody again of your online briefing on technocracy and all of the things that we're talking about now. It's going to be by way of ACT Cleveland, an ACT Cleveland meeting, an online meeting only this coming Monday, March 4th, 7 p.m. If you want to watch and and, and listen in uh, to this uh, presentation by Patrick Wood and then the interview, the question and answer by uh, Jim Simpson, uh, who is the uh, uh, runs uh, Pockets of Resistance? You got to email for the link to the uh, to the online presentation. Email info at actcleveland.org. That's Dan Ramada, one of the uh, chapter leaders. <clears throat> info at actcleveland.org. Um, and Patrick, my last question for you is this: Whenever I talk to my friends from Act for America, they are just one of the most important organizations in terms of shining the spotlight on the. <clears throat> Uh, the maneuvers of the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, radical Islam, extremism, and so on and so forth in the United States. There is a link, a relationship between Islam and sustainable development that you're talking about. Can you summarize that? Absolutely. I, I, can, I can say it this way. Um, <clears throat> Islam is compatible with sustainable development in many, many ways, and they have uh, as, as a whole, the, the Islamic countries in the Mideast have taken a swan dive into sustainable development, in particular into uh, the, the new area called fintech, financial technologies, which is designed to be the financing vehicle for sustainable development. Uh, as it turns out, fintech is compatible with Sharia finance. This is Nobody's really looking at this, but I'm telling you, this is the link right here. So you see conference after conference in the Mideast right now on financial technology. They want to lead the world, the entire world, in financial technology because it is compatible with Sharia finance. So where that's going to settle out, I can't tell you. But there is a huge link and a huge symbiotic relationship right now between the Islamic world and sustainable development. Patrick Wood, thank you so much for that surface scratcher. I know you're going to go in much more depth on that and the rest of this uh, at the presentation on Monday night. So, again, if you want to watch this presentation and learn more, um, it's extraordinarily important. Send an email to info at actcleveland.org, info at actcleveland.org. Uh, then you will uh, get the link to uh, watch that on Monday. Uh, Patrick, and get the book. I can, I've, I've got it, and I appreciate you sending that to me as well, uh, uh, Mr. Wood. Uh, Technocracy, the Hard Road to World Order. It is a wonderful primer on uh, on everything, how this whole thing was born back in uh, uh, the 30s, as you pointed out, during the Depression, and to where it is today under sustainable uh, sustainable development. Everybody really needs to read this and educate themselves and hopefully they will do exactly that. Uh, Mr. Wood, thank you so very much for your time today. We appreciate it. You're welcome. My pleasure, Bob. That's Patrick Wood on AM 1420, The Answer. We're late for traffic. Let's get there and come back on AM 1420, The Answer. Final segment of this Thursday edition of Bob Brant's Authority. Um, short one, obviously, before we turn it over to Mike Gallagher. Cannot overstate the importance of what uh, Patrick Wood just gave us a very, very uh, small thumbnail sketch of. Um, I was fortunate enough to get a copy of his book in advance of the interview. I didn't finish it, of course, but uh, was able to read enough to know that um, there is a very serious global challenge that we face that has nothing to do with climate change 
I shouldn't say that because climate change is a part. They are using that, honestly. Uh, the globalists are using that as part of their um, uh, uh, agenda, if you will, uh, to to essentially install a global world order, uh, a technocratic global world order under the guise of sustainable development. Uh, that is the outgrowth of, of what technocracy was when it started. Just a fantastic um, uh, book that I'm in the middle of and that I really am looking forward to hearing more about when, uh, when uh, Patrick Wood uh, lectures on the Act for America um, online security briefing on Monday. So if you missed some of that, by the way, it's Monday, March 4th at 7 o'clock. I think I, I say 7.30. If I did before, my apologies. I, for some reason, I'm hearing it back in my own head own head as I said, 7.30. But it, uh, to clarify that, it is 7 o'clock. And you have to info uh, to email info at actcleveland.org in order to get the link. It'll be via Zoom, and it'll be a good... Not only the interview, or excuse me, the uh, presentation by Patrick Wood, but then the interview... Uh, portion of it. I'm not sure how it's going to play out, but Jim Simpson's another brilliant guy we've had on this program who has spoken to Act for America before. Uh, he runs Pockets of Resistance, and he is going to be interviewing uh, Patrick Wood. So you kind of get two brilliant minds for the price of one with that presentation. So I'm very much looking forward to that, and I hope you are as well. Uh, on tomorrow's program, we're going to have a lot more opportunity to dig a little deeper into what we uh, uh, found out. You know, the president's supposed to speak today, uh, to, supposed to speak today, about what we found out yesterday uh, are the differences between the North Koreans and us as it pertains to finding a way to denuclearize the Korean Peninsula. Um, President Trump walking away yesterday was the big story of the morning, and we spent a lot of time on that today. He is supposed to give a statement today explaining, or a press conference rather, explaining why he did what he did. Last night on Hannity, however, I think we got a very good uh, idea, and I, I will I will tell you this. I, I came away really, really, really impressed with what the president said after walking away from that table. He was not, he was not angry. He was not disappointed. He was not spiking a football. He, he was very, very realistic. And he said, you know, I really have great confidence that we're going to get something very important done. But he was not ready to sign that very important thing just yet. And until he's ready to sign that, that he will completely denuclearize, eliminating completely the threat of North Korean nuclear uh, uh, ambitions, uh, then I'm not going to sign anything at all. Uh, the sanctions will remain in place. The president was there and ready to go. If Kim Jong-un was ready to take that next step, he wasn't. So the president walked. The way he presented that last night in the interview with Hannity, I have to tell you, was fantastic. As as presidential sounding as I've heard him, honestly, it was really, really wonderful. I'm looking forward to him building on that today. So on tomorrow's program, you can believe we're going to talk more about this based on what the president has to say today. Obviously, more on the Michael Cohen fallout as well. So I'm looking forward to having you back tomorrow. Uh, thanks very much for being a part of the show today. Thanks to my two guests, Dr. Everett Piper and uh, Patrick Wood. And thanks to Jim Lucio running the show today as well. Uh, thanks to you for listening. We'll see you tomorrow on the next Pop France Authority. Have yourself a great day. Stay where you are. Mike Gallagher's next on AM 1420 The Answer. Enjoy the silence. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.